1: Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast from The Times, I'm Matt Chorley. Don't forget to sign up to my morning email briefing, it's free, you go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox and through that you can get a special offer to become a full-blown Times subscriber for just £1 a month, for three months, you can click on the link there, the sale ends on July the 1st. Right, plug over, I'm joined in the studio this week by Daniel Finkelstein who's going to talk about the power of America, Jenny Russell on the crisis in care for vulnerable children. But first, this is Henry Zeffman on the exciting news
2: of a ministerial resignation. Philip Lee and David Davis are different in several ways. They are on opposite sides of the Brexit debate. One resigned and the other did not. One, to be frank, is an important Tory MP who people had heard of before this week and the other is not. But they were both trying to do a similar thing, force Theresa May to stop being a sphinx and pick a side on Brexit.
1: So, Henry, in the unlikely event that there are any listeners to the podcast who are not totally sure who (laughs) Philip Lee is, just explain who he is and what he's done just as we were coming into the studio to record.
2: Uh, Philip Lee is a junior justice minister. Uh, He is the member of parliament for Bracknell uh, and he is a practicing GP. And he, being a Remainer, has after two years of apparently outwardly happily serving in Theresa May's government, decided that actually he does not believe that the course the government is taking on Brexit is in the interests of the British people or his constituents, as he said, has called for the government to pick a side he in fact said this isn't about remain or leave it is about a fudge which is uh what nobody voted for on either side and also called for a second referendum of sorts um it does feel like a big deal it is the first ministerial resignation over brexit and it is really striking that after the you know two years of whispers and briefing from brexiteers that they are not going to take the softening from theresa may they're not going to take various what they see as sellouts it's actually remainer who has uh, struck the first blow uh, against Theresa May's attempts to hold the Tory party together on this fractious issue?
1: Uh, slight hostage to fortune. This. Do we think he's going to be the only one? Do we think there were others? There were certainly other ministers who remain supporting ministers who don't uh, aren't totally happy with the direction of where this all this is going. But uh,
2: any many more? Do we think that we uh, kind of take as you say, of? it is a hostage to fortune? <laughs> um, it is it's more likely than not that there won't be any other. I'm oh, yeah. uh, sorry. That's, what that, am I that's vague enough. I, I, Anyone <laughs> <could> take, <you laughs> can take <claim>, it. You <laughs> can claim you've both predicted uh, it's yes. It's almost that, that a <laughs> construction worthy of Theresa May. <laughs> um, I, I would say that uh, is unlikely uh, others will follow. I certainly don't don't sense that he is the first part of a sort of cascade Can I of put resignations.
3: Just a caveat, though. No one expected his resignation either. Why are you so confident?
2: Uh, I'm not so confident. Well, That's a crucial Why point. Are you even um, I, I don't feel like Philip Lee, uh, to to the extent that I know about his sort of uh ministerial friendships and and status in the Tory Party. I don't feel like he is at the centre of a sort of wide web of Tories. I think he might be uh, pursuing his own sort of um, slightly quixotic. What about a different vision. question,
3: though? If other people were thinking they were taking the Theresa May line that really the most important thing is to keep the party together. If they look at Philip Lee and actually think that man's been brave enough to Mm -hmm. give up quite a chunk of salary and a career in the party, because people fight desperately to get those junior jobs, that they might think, hang on a moment, I I at least could vote against
2: the government and I've got much less to lose. Absolutely. And and, and so even if he wasn't sort of part of, of a coordinated strategy you know i can see how another minister who has been wrestling with their conscience might decide to take the philip lee answer i mean i met this minister last week uh you know middle ranking like philip lee uh serving in a department that, that doesn't have much to do with brexit and they were sort of grilling me on on whether the ea amendment might pass the withdrawal bill and saying you know if not why not uh you know i really think we need to stay in the single market you know i'm despairing i'm just not engaging with brexit i mean there is a lot you do forget Uh, the fact that the vast majority of the Tory parliamentary party thinks the central policy of this government, what their government that they served in will be remembered for, is mad. Uh, And Philip Lee has been wrestling with that for two years, clearly, and suddenly woken up and gone, why am I doing this?
4: Lots of people think Brexit is mad. That's correct. Uh, But they also think the electorate are... You know, the the sort of consensus view is, yes, but the electorate sets us the task to do it, and we promise people a referendum. I think... um, what might answer Jenny's question a little bit is that the grounds on which Philip Lee decided to go, which were that there should be a second referendum, that isn't that widely shared. I think that mm-hmm. it's more likely to come when Customs Union in particular is pushed to the point. And, it, and I think people have ignored the, uh, the fact that there are, co- there are lots of Remain ministers who are extremely uh, worried about the impact on the economy of Brexit. And are not necessarily going to stay in office. I I think, actually, I there will be...
3: unpack that a bit? What well, mean, I think there will...
4: It's a long way of saying, I think there will eventually be more resignations, but they probably won't come now and they probably won't come over this. In other words, they'll come over uh, the customs union as we get closer to a deal or maybe even over the deal itself.
3: You mean they'll insist that there should be a customs union because otherwise the hit on uh, the economy will be so disastrous?
1: Certainly that we shouldn't have a backstop with a date in it. Yes, and so, just going back to David Davis, um, you raised the fact that obviously for most of last week he was apparently on the verge of um, constantly re- resigning, um, according to his friends. Although on the radio this morning he denied. So, it's it absolute nonsense. And he doesn't even know who these friends are. So, raising the prospect that he doesn't have any at all. Um, but uh, how serious was it, Henry? There was this sort of extraordinary 48 hours in Westminster I'm not sure the rest of the country is necessarily gripped by the ins and outs of the backstop but how serious was that threat of David
2: Davis? It, it was serious uh, undeniably uh, and you know David Davis laughing his way through a question uh, the answer to a question is a sure sign that what he's saying uh, is not true As he laughs, laughs through
3: his way through almost all questions Absolutely. we one can now discount almost everything
2: he says in case you didn't already <laughs> but, 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 but what he was in particular saying to Theresa May and she in fact uh, discounted successfully was the, the backstop on customs, i.e. the insure, well, supposed insurance policy for how to manage arrangements. Uh, particularly on the Irish border uh, should a new customs arrangement not be in place at the end of the transitional period at the end of 2020 uh, must be time limited so Brexiteers in general and David Davis in particular were starting to worry I think with some justification that Theresa May wanted this backstop which effectively keeps customs the same keeps the UK in a customs union was going to by default become the front stop Uh, and he suddenly despite knowing about this for Uh, some days if not weeks uh, realized uh, and got spooked and demanded that she put a date uh, or time limit on that backstop by which it must expire she did no such thing she put a date in the proposal but that date was governed by the verb expects i.e. she put an aspiration which almost nobody in Westminster thinks the government has any hope merely administratively let alone politically of meeting uh, and thereby saw off the imminent threat
3: The fact that David Davis was so slow to wake up to the implications of that statement on the backstop is deeply depressing because I don't know how he can be expected to see through what's going on at the EU level if he can't even understand the clear implications of his own government statements. But I wanted to um, also take up the point about why Philip Lee resigned. It's very interesting that he says that as far as he can see, that the compromise we're heading for now is that we are now neither going to be properly in nor properly out of the EU. And his whole logic for calling for a second referendum is he's saying this is not what either side in the referendum voted for. Now, intriguing, which is why he thinks that in the end, the decision should be put to the British people since it will satisfy neither Leavers nor Remainers. Now, he could call that a brilliant compromise. But I was told yesterday that, fascinatingly, Boris Johnson is now of the opinion that... To be half in and half out would be worse than leaving. So, in fact, what Boris Johnson's preference, if we end up with this compromise, is he would prefer that we just leave entirely and have a hard Brexit. But if we can't have a hard Brexit, he actually thinks it would be better to remain than to end up with this compromise. So the second preference, logically, is to stay.
2: I think that plays into the broader frustration with Theresa May, which you can find almost any Tory MP of any persuasion to express, (laughs) Uh, which is she just won't make up her mind. I mean, one said to me uh, yesterday, uh, you know, if if only she had just said in her Lancaster House speech in January 2017, rather than setting out parameters for her approach, if she had said, you know, here is my detailed blueprint for Brexit uh, and this is what I'm going to deliver... Settling all the questions, which she still hasn't settled now, uh, actually, the bulk of the Tory parliamentary party would have just gone along with it f- out of sheer desperation for someone to articulate something. I mean, I don't know whether well, that's
4: well. True there are two thing. things I don't agree with on that. One is, <laughs> uh, one is, <laughs> one is, I think, so one is, I think that she uh, did um, announce. Uh, very clear lines but two of them conflicted with each other that yeah. was the problem <laughs> Northern Ireland and the Customs yeah. Union um, and to have gone quite as far as the government did on promising of what they would do on the border uh, of, with Ireland and then also has gone as far as it did on the Customs Union those two things clashed with each other the, the second thing is um, it. While Conservative MPs say they want her to pick a position. If she picked a position, it would be a disaster.
1: Um, so <laughs> well, it, what they want it, what, is her to
4: pick their position. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and if uh, what she is doing, and you can argue forever whether this yeah. is deliberate strategy or where we ended up to because she can't do anything else, um, is using the fact that there's no parliamentary majority for the, for the hard Brexit position, or indeed for anything, um, as a way of trying to keep the government together and disciplining people as they get closer to re- re- realising reality which means that the brexit people like david davis are basically understand they can't get their position through the uh, commons in the end um so uh, i think um the strategy that everyone urges upon her which is to you know pick a position well you would pick one but it will last for five minutes because the underneath it the gut there is no majority for any brexit of any kind. There's only majorities against all the Brexits that you can have. And the reason for that is the Labour Party, and you can take the view this is cynical and terrible, or you can take the view that it's canny uh, because they want to get rid of the government. The Labour Party has taken a position which lends itself to, to being against any practical deal of any kind, because what they want in it is it um, are things that are not possibly negotiable. Uh, and so therefore, one of the reasons that I've always been very leery about a meaningful vote is that I think Parliament's lack of a majority could be one of the major reasons we don't get a deal. The government can negotiate a deal, uh, but it can't negotiate a deal that Parliament supports because Parliament doesn't have support for any individual deal. So Parliament will go on voting down deals, possibly involving uh, you know, coalitions right across the House with Labour uh, providing most of the votes, but also some re- Remainers who take the view that any deal is bad and some Leavers who would rather have a hard Brexit. And then we end up with a with a without any deal at all. And let's not let's not forget there are two different kinds of no deal. There's the no deal, which means we have a withdrawal agreement but no um, trade arrangement. That is, in my view, a bad outcome, but not but may not be <laughs> calamitous, may not be calamitous. Uh, the, the other uh, option, which is that we leave without a withdrawal agreement, is indubitably calamitous and simply can't be allowed to happen, uh, but could happen uh, the more we press for meaningful votes and the more that we potentially turn down in parliament any negotiated deal. Jenny?
3: Well, this is why I am one of the people who is for a second vote in the country on the Philip Lee principles, which I've argued for in a column before because I think that if we get to the point where Theresa May has got some kind of negotiated deal but Parliament hasn't got a majority for it I think that it would be proper then to go to the country and offer them three choices in two votes one week apart. In the first week oh, you say Two, two referendums in a, in a week? No, just like the French presidential okay. election. It's in, it's in order to make sure that it's a, it's a fair choice and, okay. and not just a binary one. So in the first week you ask the country whether you would rather have no deal, this deal or remain in the European Union. And the mathematics being what they are, obviously the final two choices in the following week would be either remain in the European Union and then one of the other two, whichever the Brexiteers have voted for, which is either no deal or this deal. And then you put a fair choice to the country and everyone feels that they've had their say. And people would then be voting...
4: Particularly you, I would say, in these circumstances. In other words, I mean... That- <laughs> <laughs> i my sentence.
3: Yes. <laughs> then people would know what they were voting for, whereas in the last referendum, people were voting on hope and fear and identity. In this case, it would be pretty clear what are the consequences of the choices that you're about to make. And in that case, Parliament, which, as we know, is about thirds. Against Brexit, would be able to say to the country, "We have brought the final deal back to you. What do you want?"
4: I mean, I think we people did know. What they were being asked to make a decision on, if there was a strong, he didn't understand if the there was going to be a strong, well, in your opinion, they didn't. But if they, if they, well, they even David they, Davis didn't they, understand consequences. But there the also consequences, consequences which, 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 we remainers, you know, and I strongly, agree, which we remainers couldn't explain about staying in the European Union. So you, the only reason we're then we're not discussing those is because we're not in it, um, you know, because we're planning to leave because because leave won. Um, I, if there was a strong change in the mood of the country. And there was a strong mood for having a referendum on the question between the deal and staying in the European Union without that third option, in my opinion, which I think complicates things. I, I, I'm I not necessarily against it as we get closer to it. But at the moment, and all the way through it, it doesn't seem to me there has been. Um, and so therefore, Parliament has simply got to be responsible enough to take political decision about um, having offered people a referendum. Parliament. Parliament offered people a referendum. Now Parliament has got to solve the problem. But as you say, there's no majority.
3: And the problem with saying that people knew what they were voting for is that people were voting for... Unicorns and sunshine. They were told that there would be no costs. That project fear well, was simply fear that there wouldn't be the the job European, losses or anything fair, else. And now, and now they're going to find out. We've already well, got Land Rover taking a thousand jobs well, away well, this I've, week. Yeah. people will will have to think: is this a price worth paying? They may think it I've is a price worth describe
4: paying. I described staying in, uh, leaving the European Union as Baldric's cunning plan. I'm not in favour of it, but. Uh, this is—it's a very partial view because people who are listening to this program, who are for Leave, will point out that staying in the European Union also involves a
1: whole series of imponderable. And in questions. fact, in fact, had we voted but to stay in, even this week, we'd be having a conversation about uh, trade tariffs and what you know the long-term impact of a trade war between Europe and America. Uh, what's happening in Italy? We're not having those conversations about how that affects us because we sort of think, well, what you know, we're unshackling ourselves
3: well around. in a second vote we could have all those things i'm i'm all for people making the choice and if the country decided we've looked brexit closely in the eye and it's still what we want
2: fine go ahead with it Henry. i'm Ta- for democracy taking no particular position on the merits of whether there should be a second referendum i just sound a slight warning on the idea that the public uh, a wants one because there's no sign as danny suggests in the polling of a particular shift but also um you know during the general election, I was just so struck going around the country. People did think they'd made a clear decision last year and now they don't care. They're not interested. And I think a referendum, particularly a two-stage, three-option referendum, would just hit a enthusiasm barrier. But I don't think... I, I mean, quite understandably, like quite understandably, yeah, I yeah. think a lot of people in the UK with busy lives don't want or care, don't want to or care to get into the nitty-gritty of what different deals mean. They just want to either... You know, the terrible, terrible
3: problem is, as Danny says, that of course Parliament is expected to sort these things out, but we've run into the conflict between... Um, a plebiscite and Parliament's responsibilities, because Parliament doesn't think it's a good idea. Parliament,
4: this is critical, Parliament offered the referendum, right, so this was not a decision that was made, to to have a referendum was not made by a plebiscite or by a dictatorship. We had a general election, the party that favoured having a referendum won, and then all the parties, the Labour Party and the Liberal Democrats, all of the, who seem to want lots of referendums, all of the parties voted to have a referendum. And we offered people the choice on the basis that they would choose between leaving the European Union and remaining in the European Union. And now Parliament has got to decide upon a sensible policy, insofar as it can have one, of leaving the European Union, it, it, because that was the vote that people offered. Now, if the public did change its mind in a very considerable way obviously we we should revisit it and i'm not an enthusiast for leaving the european union but um i think to offer people a referendum and uh, in the way that parliament did uh came with certain responsibilities and it was to honor the result and to in a faithful way attempt to produce a deal and it's not it's not an automatic thing that means parliament will turn down any deal parliament will have to go and vote against the deals in order for that to happen and I'm simply saying I think that's irresponsible, and they shouldn't do it and by the way they shouldn't do what they're doing now which is to set themselves up to do
1: that I'm strongly of the view that we had a referendum the fact that the people who lost are getting increasingly cross about it is not the same as more people wanting to change the outcome and that the poll all the polls show that the country is still essentially split down the middle. There is no enthusiasm for a second referendum. Remainers is a clinging to that, that idea. That,
3: that that may be right, and and it may also change. There's there's a very slight shift at the moment. I agree. It might 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 not move, but as people get closer to the reality and they're actually losing jobs and seeing the consequences of 27 mile queues at Dover, if that's what we end up <coughs> with, that might change people's minds.
1: And for the in, in the interest of balance, because every time we have this conversation about uh, Brexit on the podcast, somebody points out, oh, it might not. You know, you've always talked about it's all bad. It might that might not happen. The jobs not Of course, might it not might go. not. Sure. We shall Seat. Well, and actually, we'll never, some
3: jobs are already we, going. We, we know this we,
1: week. We less. Right, let's move on. Um, we will be back after this short break.
3: You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewellery. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com.
0: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
1: Welcome back to the Red Box podcast. I'm joined in the studio by Henry Zeffman, Daniel Finkstein, and this is Jenny Russell.
3: Just in case you weren't already feeling very cheerful, I'd just like to draw your attention to the fact that hundreds of thousands of vulnerable children in England are at risk of ending up in trouble with the police or excluded from school or persuaded into street gangs because child protection budgets are being increasingly concentrated on the children who end up in care. This is an enormously short-sighted, disastrous policy which will cost us dearly in the decades to come. We just can't go on ignoring the need for preventive help if we want young people to grow up as balanced and responsible adults in the society that we're all living in.
1: Jenny, this um, definitely gets filed under massive social problem being completely ignored while the country is gripped by, or at least Westminster is gripped by Brexit.
3: Yeah, no. Well, that, that, that's that's the problem. That while we're all talking about these theories about what will happen in Parliament and parliamentary responsibility, we're not looking at what's really happening with the social problems in our society, which have been one of the drivers of Brexit. Because people were so worried about: Do my children get a decent start in life? And is there crime on the streets? And do I feel safe? And and unfortunately, what's happened with the austerity squeeze in councils, is that because they've had less and less money to spend, they have concentrated their spending on the 73,000 children who are currently in care because that's part of their statutory responsibility. And half of all the money that's spent on child protection is currently going on those children, the children who've gone so close to the edge that they've been removed from the family home because their parents can't deal with their own crises. That leaves 11.7 million children in Britain to share the remaining half of the budget. And it means that youth clubs have have cut, have been cut and something like half of all the children's centres in Britain, which helped families who were only just managing and gave them um, parenting support and skills classes and literacy and numeracy and so on, have been shut since 2010. And it means that we're getting literally hundreds of thousands of children who, had they had some help and support from the state, social workers or places to go after school or adults to guide them and parents getting assistance, would not end up, needing to be in care and instead these kids are turning to alternative activities which increasingly in urban centres for instance are drug and street gangs now this is lunacy
1: politically this this, you know david cameron especially used to talk about a lot about broken britain and troubled families and this does feel like a whole area of public policy which has just dropped out of the sort of political conversation there's no question that local
4: government spending has been put under a huge amount of pressure and we use that phrase when actually that covers a lot of things we regard as essential and important. Um, But when anyone ever talks about what has happened since austerity, I'm prompted to ask the question, well, okay, but we have to have an alternative uh, to um, austerity if we are going to talk about that having been a policy area. So, for example, uh, was it a policy area to put so much of the child protection budget in, uh in the proportions that jenny is suggesting or are we saying we should put more money into local government spending in which case where does that money come from uh so i i i don't um you know i i, I certainly like outside of this podcast to go through much more carefully what the relationships are for example between providing youth clubs and reducing crime beyond the and the extent to which local government expenditure is you, but I'm open it is important to that but I'm certainly absolutely open to the idea that there is a relationship and that reductions of government expenditure have damaged those institutions um, but then once you've once i've been convinced of that um, we have to then ask the question where is that money going to come from uh, what else is going to get less money uh, even if it's people's personal incomes uh, and which may be the very families that we're trying to help uh, protect. So we may be able to provide them with more youth clubs, but um, less money to do shopping. So we, we have to, um, now, th- there's obviously the idea that all of the money can come from oligarchs, but I don't regard, I regard that as a fantasy, uh, or that we don't need to worry about the deficit, I regard that as a fantasy too. So um, we, uh, you know, so we, we have to accompany such correct um, and Jenny's always brilliant, I think, in her columns, As by the way, of identifying social problems of this kind and bringing them to people's attention. You're right to do that, but it does then require us to think, what is the next step?
2: Henry? The, the econ- economic dilemma, dilemma that Danny just set out is exactly what Philip Hammond is wrestling with right now. And that's really interesting. And, and, and the decision he comes to will basically settle... Uh, how the Tory party approaches the 2022 election i.e do they continue saying uh, we need to be careful and spendthrift uh, to guard against what happened in the 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 early noughties uh, or do they say austerity is over well done we were all in it together but now you're going to see the sunlit uplands i mean as the times reported today they appear to have decided uh, that in the NHS's case uh, the problems with the service are too much to bear without Raising more money and putting more funding in. So uh, our colleague Francis Elliott reported that Philip Hammond is planning 10 billion of, of effectively stealth taxes to fund more money for the NHS. But I think you know the problem, the political problem internally that Theresa May will have and Philip Hammond will have is that once they start licensing more spending in certain public services, you're going to get uh, ministers, secretaries of state, campaign groups, and charities in other sectors, like uh, Jenny just mentioned, uh, who will say, "Well, what about us? You know, if you're acknowledging that austerity is over for the NHS." What about us? We all have problems. And that's a really damaging issue for the government. And in fact, the
1: the problem that you've identified is so complicated that it doesn't have a sort of lobby group in the way that the NHS has got both doctors' unions but also sort of political champions to to just keep banging the table and say, we want money. It's so disparate because partly it's to do with maybe school funding, it's to do with youth clubs, it's to do with uh, maybe police... Budgets and it—it's it, more complicated than that. So who—who who is going to bang the bang that drum?
3: I think that's right. It's—it's it's, it's less attractive to talk about the needs of potential gang members <coughs> than it is to talk about um, old ladies in hospitals needing um, hip replacements or. Um, care at home. But the point about this is that actually it's a very short term measure to concentrate your spending on the kids who have reached the point of absolute crisis in their families, because it's incredibly expensive to put a child into care. It costs the state, I can't remember the figure, something between thirty-five and £60,000 a year. So in fact, simply in terms of trying to um, cost the state less it is important to put money into preventive care. And the Tories had made exactly this diagnosis before they came in at 2010, which is why they were committed to all these children's services and the children's centres and mending Broken Britain, because they understood perfectly well that if you leave a child essentially neglected and without sufficient adult guidance and care and purpose and a sense of belonging to this society and having a role and having something to do, if you leave them alone between the ages of 0 and 15, you're not going to end up very often with a Nice upstanding member of society if they come from a chaotic background at home. So, A, I would argue that in the short term we are going to build up tremendous problems for the future because if you damage a child before it's, say, 11 or 14, it is never going to respond in the same way to all the incentives which we would like adults to respond to later on. And the second point is that. I do agree with Danny that one has to be careful about how one spends money. But I have a fundamentally different view of Danny about what the state should be doing. I think for a very long time in Britain, we have gone on expecting the kind of civilised European levels of welfare provision and safe streets and children not in gangs and less violence. But we've been expecting to do it on increasingly American levels of tax. And I do think that as a society, if we want a decent NHS, if we want not to be frightened of crime when we step outside our front doors, if we want children to grow up well, then we have to be prepared to pay a little more for it.
4: I'm not... By the way, I've never been a tax fundamentalist, and so I am absolutely willing to contemplate and support uh, raised taxes if it's necessary to, to for services. But I don't think it's true that we have uh, American levels of taxation, um, or, and um, we already have quite high taxation. The problem is we're not as rich as a country as we thought we were, uh, and therefore we can't pay for all the things that we hope to pay for. And there are lots of things that I'd like to pay for that we simply... Uh, you know, it's very hard to be able to pay for. The other thing is, I, before signing up to this agenda, I just would, a word of caution, we'd have to be sure the programmes were effective as well as expensive. Uh, and we'd have to be certain that actually it's, it's state intervention that's going to make the difference. Uh, I'm not ideologically saying, it, uh, you know, that can never happen. It could happen. And there are stated programmes that could be effective. But I think we ought to be quite cautious about it because uh, you know even at the level of common sense you have to ask yourself whether how much difference it's actually going to make so you could end up charging people a lot of money and not making much difference.
3: I have to say I sat on a, um, a committee for a couple of years which was looking into serious case reviews which go into the investigations of children who've been assaulted or killed by their parents and when you read through these catalogues of absolute disaster in these children's lives and being born into absolutely chaotic, drug-addicted, alcohol-addicted, unemployed, violent families, then you can be in absolutely no doubt at all that those children need somebody to either help those parents cope or remove them from that situation early on. And the one thing you can't do is just stand back and say, well, we'll just let them carry on until seven or eight children have had their lives wrecked within this family. Then we'll take them out. And some, I hope they don't repeat the same cycle because I've read... Literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these reports, and the cycle continues unless you break it. There's no doubt about that.
1: Well, it's a fascinating subject, and I'm sure it's one that we'll um, return to. But uh, let's move on now. We were talking about American and American levels of tax. Let's talk about American power, and this is Daniel Finkstein.
4: Well, this week we heard that the Conservative commentator, Charles Krauthammer, isn't going to be returning to his column at the Washington Post because he is suffering from terminal cancer. And this uh, coincided with the meeting between Donald Trump and uh, Kim, and the two thoughts together prompted me to return to Charles Krauthammer's essay, The Unipolar Moment the moment after the fall of the Berlin Wall, where Krauthammer argued America is now the single great uh, driving power. Uh, and uh, we have a lot of criticisms of American the conduct of American foreign policy under each president. And under this president, uh, as I think Krauthammer also acknowledges, it's erratic uh, uh, and uh, questionable and sometimes feckless. Uh, but the problem is America still pays for the world's force. And those of us who want an international system of justice and human rights uh, have to recognise that it has to be policed by somebody. And at the moment, Americans
1: are the people who are paying for the police force. Uh, let's just reflect on, even though politics has been mad for however long it feels like it's been mad for. <laughs> seeing what
3: the, would you put on that? <laughs>
1: seeing, the, uh, seeing the pictures of Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un, shaking hands in Singapore, and especially Donald Trump, behaving more like Donald Trump than ever in that sort of situation, is is still extraordinary.
4: Yes, it's a very muddled politics, and it's also a muddled picture. What did we gain? What did we lose? Clearly, I've I've been concerned, and written often in my column, about North Korean uh, threats of nuclear war. Uh, I took them seriously uh, because I think that you know if you look at New- North Korea's murderous record, you have to take it seriously. And without any question, America meeting with uh, North Korea has reduced the uh that danger somewhat uh, because it's less likely to happen in those circumstances on the other hand if you provide to nuclear weapon states a status and uh, negotiating um, uh, position and sort of cover for their human rights abuses that you do not provide to non-nuclear weapon states you are obviously incentivizing people to to nuclear proliferation Uh, so therefore that is clearly a loss so in one way the world is safer and another way the world is more dangerous on the one hand, Donald Trump is resolute in a way that Obama was not. Right? He was willing to make the threatening noises that Obama found um, disconcerting. On the other hand, uh, the, some of those threatening noises were childish and um, uh, dangerous
1: and erratic. Uh, so it is a very mixed picture. Jenny, America, is it the power, the, the single global power still?
3: Well, it is still, and I think the interesting thing about Donald Trump is that um, we thought that it was becoming less so. And in fact, what we have seen this morning is that um, it, it, it may be prepared to retain some of that authority, but only if it's allowed to do it in an unfettered way. What Donald Trump clearly loathes is having to discuss or be beholden to anybody at the at the G7, for instance. He just likes to be able to go out and wield his own power. And I took away a slightly different take um, from Danny, when I saw those two men together, I actually thought that the greatest threat to world peace um, in the last few months has been the erratic behaviour of Donald Trump. I thought he was the one who might well be inclined to send off a nuclear missile into North Korea just to show that he could. So, in fact, when I was looking at those two men together, my greatest relief came from the fact that Donald Trump is now less likely to set off nuclear weapons. And it was very distasteful, I think, to for many of us to watch his lavish praise of this man. But I also thought it was extremely clever, because the one thing that all leaders crave, and particularly dictators, is respect. And because Donald Trump was offering that, there may now be a chink in the North Korean society. And I, I've always been an advocate of talking rather than going to war with people and I think the beginning of uh, even even if you're talking to monsters and the beginning of these chinks in the society is terribly important because what may begin to change North Korea is the openness to the outside world
1: henry what have you made of it and what what's britain's role in all of this it, it feels like particularly the relationship between theresa may and donald trump is not what it could be although he's coming here in the next couple of weeks britain is
2: a very much a sort of junior bystander in all this britain has an utterly invidious role in this uh, theresa may um miscalculated i think it is now clear uh, not necessarily by going to be the first foreign leader to see Donald Trump when he beca- at the White House after he became President. I think that's sort of fairly standard behaviour for any Prime Minister dealing with any President. But by so clearly and so publicly uh, presenting herself as this bridge between uh, Donald Trump and the sort of, you know, mainstream Western world, and in particular Europe. Uh, it hasn't turned out that way. Weirdly, Emmanuel Macron seems like the Trump whisperer, uh, whereas Theresa May uh, is sort of uh, flailing at the sidelines. Um one thing that I find very interesting when Danny said that uh, sort of presented Charles Krauthammer's argument as as, as America's influence stems from it being uh, the world's policeman, paying for the world's force Um, I wonder whether Donald Trump shows that that isn't quite the case uh, that it is just America's sort of central might. I mean Donald Trump is the rogue policeman who doesn't believe in, you know, the rules of that have governed the police for for decades. No, no. If you look at American foreign policy it is
4: roller-coastered uh, since uh, the unipolar moment through Clinton's liberal interventionism uh, the democratic globalism of Bush, um, the the position of Obama, um, and now through to the position taken by um, uh, Trump, which is often hard to estimate. Uh, but we have to live with all of those things because um, they're they are the global policemen, however rogue they are. Uh, and um, it's just that I think you know what Kratammer brings makes me understand is um, if we want. a a different situation where we have to be willing to pay for it and lead with other allies
1: Well it's fascinating and I wish we had more time to talk about it I'm sure we will turn to uh, Donald Trump's imminent um, visit to Britain uh, shortly don't forget to sign up to my morning email thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox and through that you can get the link to how you can uh, save to sign up as a new Time subscriber but for now my thanks to Henry Zeffman, Jenny Russell Daniel Finkerside and me Matt Chorley it's goodbye Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to
2: thetimes.co.uk.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi. Hi.